This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. All right, we're going to read our text today. Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. If you would stand and read that with me. Daniel 3. 1 through 7, it's a little prelude to a very well-known story in, this, in the Bible. Um, we're not going to quite get there today. Kurt, I'll bring that home next week. Um, chapter 3, 1 through 7 says this, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth was, six, breadth was six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together, sent together the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that the king had set up, and they stood before the image that he had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the harp, the horn, the pipe, the, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every type of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that, the King that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the, harp, the horn, the pipe, the, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we pray today as we just uh, unpack this and submit ourselves under your word that you just uh, remind us of what true and holy worship is. Uh, just remind us of that and invite us into how to do that um, with a greater sense of delight, a greater sense of awareness, uh, and just a greater sense of dedication to you. Uh, Lord, make us people that worship you and that worship you in the way that you deserve to be worshiped, that you should be worshiped to you as the worthy one that you are. Lord, we pray um, that as I speak today, that, that your spirit preach a, an even more profound, even, even greater application, second sermon that gives us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth um, as we come into your word and your presence today. It's in your name we ask these things. Amen. You guys can be seated. Uh, a little bit going on here, quite a scene. King Nebuchadnezzar has set up here where where the sound of these you know, huge golden statue, and the context is the first couple chapters of Daniel, uh, we learn that the king learns that his kingdom is not going to last, and that there's actually going to be other kingdoms that come and overthrow, inferior kingdoms that overthrow it and overthrow it and overthrow it, and eventually God is going to establish a kingdom that will never cease to exist. Okay, we learned that in chapter 2. But it seems like King Nebuchadnezzar, in spite of that, decided he's going to build a 90-foot golden statue anyway and demand that it be worshipped. And I don't know about you, but it does good for me sometimes to, to kind of use my imagination to kind of understand this scene and this scenario. Um, for me, I think of the scene in The Lion King where, you know, like Rafiki is about to present Simba to all the animals and they're singing Circle of Life, you know, except for the hyenas and the bad lion, right? We got that. But they're singing the Circle of Life, and there's the elephants and the giraffes and the zebras, and all these animals gathered around this big, you know, rock, pride rock, and then the lion goes out. Okay, that's kind of what I envision, that there's people from all tribes and tongues and nations, and they're all gathered around, and there's potentially, you know, some scholars say millions of people gathered here in Babylon um, from all tribes and languages and nations, 
And what he set before them is this huge golden icon, this golden idol that he wants them to worship. Now, if you're if you've paid attention to the Bible, and I had to do some research to find this, you, you're not you're not uh, you know in, unfamiliar with hearing the phrase nations, peoples, languages, you know, all these people being assembled. But if you look, this is the first time this has happened. This is the first time that the nations have been assembled since the book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, there was something else that happened when the nations were assembled, and that was the people were trying to build a tower to God. And God actually said, you're going about this the wrong way. I'm going to scatter you and confuse you and give you tons of different nations and languages, tons of different languages and ways to communicate. And so this is a reassembling of those people. Now, between the Tower of Babel and this moment in Babylon, sorry, I think I got that confused earlier, between the Tower of Babel and this moment in Babylon, um, you see that, that God has a plan for the nations, that he certainly has a desire to bless the nations, that he certainly wants to be, desires to be Lord over the nations, but this is the first time that the nations are assembled. And like any good movie or like any good story, uh, the director or the, or the author or the playwright or the screenwriter, they don't want to mess around with you not getting the point of who the bad guy is. You ever notice that? Like, if you're confused on who the bad guy is, now some movies or some stories might might, you know, save it for the end, a little plot twist at the end. But for the most part, you kind of know who the antagonist is pretty early in the story, right? And in this story, who's the bad guy in Daniel chapter three? It's the guy with the big long name with disease in it, right? Like it seems like even his name just screams, I'm the bad guy, right? Like it's set up, he set up this image of himself. He's demanding worship of himself. And if people don't worship, what do they get? Death by fiery furnace, right? Like it's, he's clearly the bad guy. And in fact, this very concept of his demand for, you know, uniformity in worship kind of, kind of rubs against everything that's like, a, a, you know, a liberty-loving American is all about. It's like, ooh, I don't like to be told what to do, right? I don't like to be told we have to do this or else. In fact, most of you, if not all of you, have participated in a country for the last two years that have really had some tensions over this very subject. People saying one thing that I don't like or saying this or practicing this that I don't like. I mean, from, from wherever, even from mandates to suggestions to recommendations to all the words that are synonyms for that that we get kind of lost in. This has been right in front of us for the last couple of years, correct? We don't like it when we're told what to do. And in fact, anybody that does tell me exactly what to do or else, they are definitely the bad guy. Nebuchadnezzar gets the same treatment. He's the bad guy. And it leads us to ask the question, what kind of king would demand worship like this? Well, ours would. There's a plot twist for you. Ours would. Our king. Not Neb. Our king demands worship too. Psalm 95 says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. You see, we have to, we have to change our perspective on this to see that what Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was a bad guy. He didn't have great character. He wasn't a follower of the Lord. But what he was expecting in worship wasn't foreign or unheard of. In fact, it is similar to what God expects of us. First point we're going to deal with today is the, is the point of understanding that there is an expectation of worship. 
And our king, not the bad guy, our king has one too. The reality is everybody bows to something or some things. All of us worship. In Daniel, it was obvious what the image of worship was. It was a big golden icon. But Paul says this about the state of humanity that includes me or you in Romans chapter 1. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. They were claiming to be wise, but yet became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust in their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of who God is for a lie and worship and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. You know who's, I've never bowed down at a golden idol, okay? Like, listen, if I had to pass the bow down to the golden idol test, I would pass it. Just going just gonna to go ahead and warn you. You know, if somebody shows up, huge 90-foot statue, and it's like, bow down or else, I'm going to know. It's like, mm, I'm not supposed to do that. I'm going to pass that test. And in Daniel chapter 3, the test was a golden idol. I'm going to know. Now, I mean, maybe it's fire furnace. I might be persuaded, but, but I have a tendency to be persuaded. But I'm going to know I shouldn't worship that. That's what I'm getting to the point across. But the reality is, is I bow to other things all the time. In fact, when we read from Romans 1, 21 through 25, about what it means to exchange the truth of God for a lie, to worship creature rather than creator, we need to be careful in keeping watch over our own souls right here. Okay? There's a great temptation for us to all exchange the truth of who God is for a lie. And at least for me, it doesn't appear to come in the form of a 90-foot idol. That's kind of what I was talking about. For me, the exchange of worshiping creature rather than creator or exchanging the truth of God for a lie, it, it comes in more subtle temptations, right? It comes in things that are acceptable and understandable, permissible, and even might appear ideal. Um, Tim Keller talks about idols, in it, and I've talked about idols from this platform multiple times. And so for some of you, this section of our time together today might be a little review. But Tim Keller talks about idols, and he says that an idol is rarely an evil thing or a wicked thing. It's most of the time a good thing that we make an ultimate thing. Letting something be the center of our heart's adoration or affection other than Christ. And in fact, I want to invite you into what the psalmist would invite us all into. David, the psalmist in Psalm 139, where he concludes his psalm by saying, point out anything in me that grieves you or offends you. Search me, O God, and point out anything in me, Lord, that grieves you or offends you. So how do we do that? Well, we do that by investigating where are the places that we are tempted to worship. Maybe not golden idols that are 90 feet tall, but the places that we are tempted to worship and tempted to give our affections that are not the Lord. So I'm going to have you give you a list of questions here, okay? Now, I don't have the answers to these questions for you, and I'm not even saying that every answer to these questions is necessarily a symptom of idolatry in your hearts. I'm saying that the way we answer these questions, if taken before the Lord, might invite us to see some idolatry in our hearts, okay? So we answer these questions through the lens of Psalm 139, search me, O God, and point out anything in me that might offend you. What's one thing that you do that, that, what's one thing, what one thing do you most hope is in your future? Could that thing be a seed of idolatry? What is the one thing you worry the most about losing? If you could change one thing about yourself right now, what would it be? What thing have you sacrificed the most 
for? When do you feel the most significant? What triggers a lowness or a depression in you? Or where do you turn for comfort when things are not going well? The answers to those questions could potentially point out some places of idolatry. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, goes a little bit farther and gives them some maybe greater inventory questions over a number of different uh, potential places of idolatry. So I'm just going to kind of read through these quickly. They're exhaustive. Um, And I I ask you to read these kind of from the negative approach. So the first one says, you know, um, life only has meaning or I only have worth if I have power and influence over others, right? So maybe you kind of read that through the negative lens. I am not valuable if I'm powerless and I don't have any influence. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Or the second one is I'm loved and respected by fill in the blank. Maybe it's a boss, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's kids, friend, or saying, man, if so-and-so disrespected me and never loved me, would my life have value or purpose or meaning? Okay, so I'm just going to read through these. Um, I only have value or worth. Life only has meaning. I only have value or worth. If I have power and influence over others, if I am loved and respected by fill in the blank, if I have or get to experience this pleasurable experience for a particular quality of life, if I'm able to get mastery over my area, over my life in the area of, and it could be finances or fitness or, or relationships, if people are dependent upon me and need me, if someone is there to protect me and keep me safe, if I am completely free from obligations or responsibilities to take care of someone else, I'm, I only have, my life only has value or meaning, I only have worth or value if I'm highly productive and getting a lot done, so a work idolatry, if I'm being recognized for my accomplishments and excelling in my work and achievement idolatry, you see some of these. I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, and nice possessions and materialistic idolatry. And again, everybody's like, oh, no, it's not me. But then you start to ask the question, what if I had none of those things? What if I had, a, what if I had no wealth, no affluence, no financial freedom, was limited in everything, and had nothing that I even cared to possess? Would I feel like my life lacked meaning? Ugh. If so, that could be a place that we take before the Lord. Lord, point out anything in me that offends you. I'm adhering to my religion's moral codes and accomplished in its activities. Man, we do that one. The one person in my life is happy to be there or happy with me. I'm totally independent of organized religion and living by a self-made, self-made morality. That's some people that have an irreligion idolatry. My race or culture is ascendant and recognized as superior, uh, a racial cultural idolatry. A, a particular social grouping, a professional grouping lets me in. Uh, my children and or my parents are happy and happy with me, a family idolatry. If my children or parents were always dissatisfied and frustrated and resentful of me, would I feel like my life has meaning or value? Mr. or Mrs. Wright is in love with me. Uh, Some have a suffering idolatry. I'm hurting in a problem. Only then do I feel worthy of love or able to deal with God that I deserve it, that I deserve someone to come help me or rescue me because I'm in a place of suffering. My political or social cause is making progress or ascending in influence or power. An ideology, ideology idolatry, or I have a particular kind of look, body image, and image idolatry. Okay, so this is just a list of some things that could be a great um, inspector of our hearts to kind of consider some of these things. And again, if you want to read into this more, like go get the book Counterfeit Gods uh, by Tim Keller as, a, as, an in, as an entry into what it means to start to uncover the idols in our life. You see, this list is not exhaustive, and I'm not saying it points out idolatry everywhere. I'm saying it can help in tandem with the Holy Spirit of inviting him into this list and saying, Lord, point out anything in me that offends you. This list might in fact, or those questions might in fact point out some of the things that we love, 
some that we're aware of, some that we hold very close to us, some that we maybe aren't aware of or weren't aware of before we started reading about it. The truth is, when we have our loves out of order, our also lives are out of order. Disordered loves always lead to disordered lives. And so let's look back at the text with Nebuchadnezzar here. When he notices people reordering their life around something that wasn't the big golden image, what was his response? What was his response? People aren't bowing. What was, was going to happen to them? This is the part where you talk back. They get, de- yeah, death. They're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace, right? And, and, and not just eventually, immediately, if you read the text, that they would immediately be thrown into a fiery furnace because they're, they're, the order or the, the, uh, the effect of their hearts so or their worship was, was on something else other than what the Lord or what the king decreed it to be. Now, the truth is, our God could have that exact same posture. He could say, the moment, the moment, that you worship anything other than me, destruction and death for you. He could say that by the grace of God. He has shown his perfect patience with us in the way that he deals with us by giving us Jesus. In fact, God doesn't slay us in our lack of worship. He slays and crushes Christ in our lack of worship. That's the beauty of the gospel, is that instead of us going to the fiery furnace, Jesus went to a cross. And we are now invited to worship from righteousness granted to us as opposed to righteousness earned by us. And this should satisfy our souls. We shouldn't be left to be sorrowful. We should be left to be satisfied. Let me give an example of what that means. Anytime I've been called out by an authority figure in my life, and we can just go ahead and start the list of who those might be from teachers to coaches to principals, get lots of time with those. Um, to parents, all sorts of things. If I know I'm guilty, if I know I'm guilty, y'all, I have my defense ready, right? Like I am gonna, I'm gonna crank up the emotion. I'm gonna feel, and, and genuinely feel sorrowful. Man, I, I hated knowing that I disappointed. Even if I did behavior that was disappointing, I hated knowing I disappointed people that I cared about, right? So a coach or my parents or, or a, a teacher or a principal, I hated it. And it broke my heart. And it's like, no, I'm so sorry. I won't ever do that again. You know, like I would meet, I would meet my lack of compliance with a lot of sorrow. But in Christ, we're invited to meet the times that we don't comply as worshipers, the times that we don't, that we don't obey as worshipers, that we don't give him the worship he's due. We don't have to meet, we are, we are, our hearts can be sorrowful, but we don't have to meet those begging for mercy and grace. We can meet those satisfied that our, that our penalty has been taken care of fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's really good news. That's really good news. I can confidently, just like David in Psalm 51, confidently stand and say, like, I get to be covered in grace because of the work of Christ. Does that give us a license to to disorder our lives or to reorder our affections? No. It should give us a satisfaction in Christ who always allows us to come back as if we've never not worshipped from day one. So Our king knows something. So this is something Nebuchadnezzar didn't know. Our king knows something, that when our worship comes from satisfaction and joy and delight in him, it's better than dutiful demand. The Lord, our Lord, the, our God, wants to be the Lord of your love. I've heard this illustration used before by a number of different pastors. I'm going to personalize it today and use it. It's not original with me, but it certainly communicates what I'm trying to communicate. And December 29th I'll, will be my anniversary. 
And if on my anniversary, I were to go pick up a dozen roses, come home, get out of my truck and have them behind my back and walk to my front door and ring my doorbell, which would be weird because I have a key to my house, right? Ring my doorbell, my wife to come answer the door and me to bring forth my dozen roses. And she says, Andrew, you shouldn't have. And I say, no, I have to because it is my obligation as your husband on the day that is an anniversary of our wedding that I must present you with flowers as a duty of showcasing what you mean to me, okay? Now, if I said that to my wife on our anniversary, we should probably cancel the dinner reservations that night, right? That would not be very kind. It would not be very loving. But if instead, if the illustration was lived out this way, if I presented the, rang the doorbell, presented the roses, and she said, Andrew, you shouldn't have. And I was like, it is my delight to give you this. Like, it is my delight to delight in you. It is my joy to take great delight in you, Maria. Like, I love you. I love watching your face light up with the surprise of 12 roses and, and for the night that we're going to get to spend together celebrating the, the faithfulness that you've journeyed with us every single one of these years. Like, that's a whole different approach, isn't it? And it's received a whole different way. But the reality is, is when it comes to our worship for God, most of us tend to tend, or many of us might tend to create boxes of compliance and compartmentalization and duty and, and obedience rather than, and, you know, obedience to demand rather than from a place of adoration or a place of affection or a place of delight. God doesn't want your external emotionless behavior like Nebuchadnezzar did. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. He wants you to take pleasure in him. And he expects you to worship from that place of delight and joy. It's from that. It's from when you worship out of a place of delight and joy that his glory is magnified. In fact, like when we talk about, we stood at Daniel chapter 3 and we looked back at the Tower of Babel where the nations were gathered. Well, if we stand at Daniel chapter 3 and we look forward to Revelation chapter 5, when the nations are going to be gathered again, it says that they're going to come around a throne and they're going to celebrate the one that is worthy. Okay, this is really important language in, in, our, in, our, in, in the Bible for us. It's really important because we're going to be tempted. And in fact, people all over the world today, billions of people worship non-worthy ones all the time. Like, I don't know if I have to, I know in our, in our culture, there seems to be like this con concept that like you do you and I do me and it's all good and yippee and yay and, you know, all these things as long as you're sincere. And I know you don't believe that. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, put my beliefs on you. And I know that you, I don't want you to put your beliefs on me and that we tend to have this thing where God kind of sits back and he's like, all right, Asia. Okay. Most of you, some of you are down with me, but some of you, you know, maybe not. You do you, you do you. 1040 window. You do you, Saudi Arabia. Cool. You know, like, you do you, America. Oh, you do you, South. That's not the way it, that's not the way it comes across. Like, his heart is broken and grieved because everything else that anyone worships other than the one true God is worshiping something that's not able to save them, that's not able to sustain them, and ultimately isn't worthy. And just to be clear, Allah isn't worthy of the worship he gets. He's just flat out not worthy of it. Buddha, not worthy. Vishnu, or one of the other hundreds of thousands of gods in the Hindu faith, not worthy of it. A, a diplomatic leader, not worthy of it. Putin, not worthy of it. Trump, not worthy of it. Biden, not worthy of it. Republican Party, not worthy of it. Democratic Party, not, not worthy of it. Sports star, not worthy of it. Icon, not worthy of it. None of those people are worthy of it. Andrew, not worthy of it. But yet I worship at the idol of me all the time. An unworthy one. And because we know who the worthy one is, 
We're invited. We're invited to enjoy him because he alone is, in fact, worthy. And for our hearts, for our hearts to be moved, that people all over the planet, that's why we talked about this at the beginning, people all, the, all over the planet stop worshiping what's not worthy to be worshiped for eternity because only one name is. I got to be at a, a banquet this past week. Um, Kurt and a number of people in our church and partnerships that we have in the city with Lexington Leadership Foundation. And it blessed my heart to hear the CEO of Lexington Leadership Foundation, Eric Gary, stand up and say, there's going to be a lot of names mentioned tonight. There's going to be a lot of people with really incredible passions and gifts and talents and stories that have done really incredible things. And you're going to hear a lot of names said from this stage, but we would be disobedient and we would be evil if the name we didn't mention above every name. And the reason we do what we do is the name of Jesus. He says that at this banquet, at this fundraiser. And that's one of the reasons we love LLF with how Jesus-centric they are. But it's just a reminder. It's just a reminder that we tend to name lots of names, but there's only one name worth naming. So we want to be like the group of people in Revelation 5, not the group of people at Babel, not the group of people in Babylon, but the group of people, the nations assembled around the throne that say, worthy is he. He was slain and by his blood he has ransomed people from God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We're invited to delight in the only worthy one. And so here's my question. What's he done for you that's worthy of your worship? I don't want to answer that for you. I could point to a lot of scriptures and say, you should believe this. But what's he done for you that's worthy of your worship? What's he doing for you that's worthy of your worship that only he can do? I don't want to rob from you the opportunity to develop that part of your testimony present. Present tense testimony today. I do want to know what he's done for you in the past, but also want to know what he's doing for you right now that's worthy of your worship. So the first point of today was the expectation of worship. The second is the wonder of worship. I'm going to read from Psalm 96, uh, one of my favorite psalms in the Bible. It says, So sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name and tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work among all the peoples, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He, uh, he is to be feared above all gods, the only worthy one. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of pe- all the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that's due his name. Bring an offering and come to his courts and worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad that the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, before he comes, for he comes to judge the earth and he will judge it, the world in righteousness and his people in his faithfulness. Doesn't that psalm ring of wonder? The definition of wonder is a great astonishment or adoration. When it comes to understanding the God we worship, not only should there be the concept of worship, but our worship to be accompanied with uh, the the understanding of wonder. Uh, John Piper has a quote that kind of talks about this, maybe makes it all come together. He says, nothing makes God more supreme and more central in worship than when a people are utterly persuaded that nothing, not money or prestige or leisure or family or job or health or sports or friends or toys, nothing 
is going to bring satisfaction to their sinful, guilty, aching hearts other than Christ. What a quote. A life of true and complete response to Jesus is, as J.I. Packer puts it, always rooted in the soil of awed adoration to Christ. There is a certain wonder that accompanies the worship of Jesus. When people are aligned in a singular focus or a singular endeavor, it's full of awe and wonder. Whether that's a sporting event or a concert or a, a movement of people, whenever you've gotten to see people aligned in, in, in worship of, of one thing or in fulfillment of one endeavor, with it comes the accompanying wonder. It's just incredible to see. It's contagious. There's a, there's a frenzy. There's an energy. Like Whether it's, again, cheering on a sports dance, probably where we see it the most is in the, the category of sports or in maybe even in music, but it's like a group of people all united in one thing. There's a sense of wonder. What if instead of, and as much as I love the Kentucky Wildcats, or as much as I might have a favorite music artist, what if instead of, of the high, uh, the emotional high of, of my sporting event going the way I wanted, or, or a concert having a delightful experience, what if I was more wrapped up and more, more like intoxicated uh, by the wonder of what it means to worship Jesus along and with my faith family. That's what we hope for. That this worship of our God in our midst becomes astonishing and contagious to other people. In fact, one of my fondest memories here in this church is probably happened about five years ago, four or five years ago. We were singing, I was standing in the back where I normally stand, and we were singing, How Great Thou Art. And I, I was able to look around the room and, you know, one of the vantage points I have as one of the pastors here is, is knowing the journey of many of you, many of us, maybe in a way that I might have a, a leg up in that compartment to some people in our, in our congregation. And I'm looking around the room and I'm seeing people sing how great thou art from all these different vantage points that I'm aware of that they're walking through and journeying and some, most of which were very difficult. And then it starts to dawn on me that everybody in here is singing How Great Thou Art from a different perspective and vantage point. And then it starts to dawn on me that this is like one of the most popular hymns of all time, and it's been sung for centuries by millions of people, if not billions of people, and every single time that it's ever been sung by any voice that's ever sung it has proclaimed that God has been great from a different vantage point, walking through a different thing uniquely in a different season than anyone else ever has in that whole span. And it just kind of like took me back. And I was like, whoa, like this has been an anthem that has been sung by millions and millions of people. And every single one of them had a different vantage point on how great our God truly is. That's, a, a, that's an experience of wonder for me. The worship of God is wonderful. And it's astonishing when we adore a king that saved us. There's no great, there's no greater wonder in our worship when we adore a king that saved us, when we adore a king that proves himself great to us in spite of the season that we find ourselves in. And then the last thing I want to kind of invite you into in this concept of the wonder of worship is how much wonder there is in salvation. This week I was talking to my father on the phone, and every year my dad and I, we go duck hunting in Arkansas. We actually haven't gone for a couple years in COVID and all sorts of stuff, but we, we've regularly gone to Arkansas in January and gone duck hunting. Now, some of you guys are like, what? You know, and some of you are like, right on, okay, anywhere in between, that's cool. And um, we have, he, he more than me kind of uh, pursues that, and I'm, I'm a tag along with him because it's something we enjoy doing together. And there's a gentleman that we've met over the years. His name is Tripp, and Tripp lives in southern Georgia. Um, Tripp is a, 
a very common sense guy. He's a blue, very blue collar guy, uh, and he has a very common sense faith. Uh, just a, just a, what I would call a good old boy. Now, if you've never met a good old boy, um, you should probably meet a good old boy. But that is Trip Neal in Dublin, Georgia. And so Trip is our duck guide. He calls ducks. He has duck dogs. He's the whole the whole the whole total package. And so Trip called my dad this week, and he was emotional on the other line of the phone. Dad called and told me this story. And he said, Trip, you know, what's got you all riled up? And he said, well, Jeff, the guy that I work with here has called me and said for the last couple days that something has put me on his heart that he's supposed to talk to me about what it means to be saved. And he's like, Jeff, I love the Lord, but I have no idea how to see someone get saved. And he, he said, even if he was confessing that, it made him very emotional because he felt um, you know, ill-equipped as a follower of Jesus to lead someone else to salvation. And dad said, well, Trip, we're going to, we'll take care of this. You know, we'll, we'll, let's walk through this together. And so he said, he kind of gave him a little game plan and, and said, you know, do you have a Bible in your house? He said, yeah, I have a Bible. And then Trip goes, Jeff, it's my dad's name. Jeff, um, am I going to have to use the book of Genesis? And he said, no. And he goes, oh, good. He said, my pet raccoon chewed up the book of Genesis in the Bible <laughs> not too long ago ate that part out, so I hope we didn't have to use it. And so Tripp takes his Genesis less Bible, journeys over to his friend's house, and on the tailgate of his truck with my dad on speakerphone, giving him references in the book of Romans, Tripp invites this young man to stare at the gospel in the book of Romans through what we call the Romans Road, and to read the story of the Romans Road in the presentation of salvation, and to look at the, at the word of God and at the conclusion of him journeying through the scriptures with Jesus, with Tripp, and with my dad via speakerphone, this young man gave his life to Christ. And Tripp got to lead first person he'd ever led to Christ in his life via cell phone, but ultimately through the truth of the word of God. And his dad was telling me that story. I'm just sitting on the other end of the line, and I'm like, because I know this guy. One, like I expect him to teach me about how to duck call with, you know, working the reeds and all that stuff. But I don't expect him to teach me, you know, I, I wouldn't have the expectation that we're going to have a, necessarily a deep, tremendous story uh, uh, through the Bible. And yet to see the Lord use tripping away that invited someone else to cross over permanently from death to life and to trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior. As I was hearing that story, my heart was filled with wonder. A young man in this church named Hunter, a little over a year ago, about 13 months ago, actually, um, came to know Christ, that the Lord literally brought him to UK from Connecticut, literally intersected his life, interrupted his life with some people on this campus that loved Jesus. They in introduced him to who Christ was and to what Christ could be for his life. Said, are you interested in following this guy? And he's like, yes, this is what I've been looking for. Uh, on October 3rd, 2021, we baptized Hunter right over here. And ever since then, pretty much permanently, I told him in the first service that he was becoming more and more Baptist because he sits in the same area every week. He kind of sits right down here every single week. And I don't say that to like fuss at him. A lot of you guys sit in the same spots. It's cool. My point is that there used to be a vacant chair there. And for the last 13 months, there's been one filled because of the wonder of salvation in Hunter's life. I look out into this crowd today even. I see, every, Connor, every time I get to hang out with you, every time I hear an update on what you're doing in ministry on this campus and on Asbury, I get to hear of how blown away you are at what God's up to in other people's lives. The sense of wonder. There is a wonder that happens in a family when people are added to it. 
We're going to talk about that at the end of our time together today. But, but if you've ever seen like the, a, the birth of a new child or a child added to a family by adoption, there's a sense of wonder that's attached to that that can't be replicated in any other way. There's a wonder when people are saved. And so I want to ask you this question, not from a place of guilt or shame, not from a place of scolding, but when's the last time you witnessed the wonder of somebody else's salvation? Not historically saying like right on, but somebody that you know that was walking towards the fire, the fieriest of fiery furnaces. And the Lord called them from death to life. Maybe he used you, maybe he didn't, but that you got to celebrate relationally as at least a participant in their journey. When's the last time you witnessed the wonder of somebody else being saved? And if you want to see wonder get contagious in our context and in our faith family, it would be that the Lord add stories of conversion to this place. Like, I don't say that from, again, from a place of we're not doing our job or we're not doing well, but would you join me, church, in expecting, in expecting God to add people to this faith family, not just because they find us and we're a cool place to hang out, but because they find Christ and they move from death to life. Would you join me in praying about who's someone that you might get to witness the wonder of their salvation? You know, the, for, there's been a campaign for a number of years uh, through really evangelicalism, maybe specifically uh, through some churches that we're partnered with called Who's Your One? Is there one person? Is there one person in your life that you would pray for the wonder of salvation to be lived out and, and get to be on display in their life, of transformation, of them crossing over from death to life, of Jesus for them being known that he is the one that saves them? If you want to see worship happen at an incredible level, Start seeing the wonder of salvation happen and watch incredible worship follow it. It will every time. And so there's something wonderful about our worship because there's something wonderful about the God that saves us. Kurt's going to come up and close us out with a song where, where it actually is titled that we're invited into wonder. And one of the things I want to leave us with is that when it comes to understanding this text from Daniel chapter 3 today, like, we're going to the, get to the awesome part of the story with the way that the Lord saves um, those that, that put their affection and their trust and, and their commitment and their, their dedication in Him. We're going to get to that. Um, but today, to just give us the landscape of there's always going to be things competing for the worship of your hearts, for the adoration of your hearts, and for the affection of your hearts, always. And for you to realize that you have a God that expects worship from you, but he knows that you couldn't give it to him on your own. The only person that could, that could adequately put you in the place to worship Jesus, to worship God, was through the work of Jesus on the cross for me and for you. And so because of the work of Christ, we can now be expectant worshipers and hopeful worshipers of the wonder of what it means for God to be fully present in our midst and fully adding to our midst. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for um, the wonder of worshiping you, the wonder of grace, the wonder of faith, the wonder of salvation. And Lord, we just pray that as we um, conclude our time together today, that you just move our hearts to be people of, uh, of greater worship, people of greater worship that, that do the work of, of letting you sift through our hearts and to see where our affections may be tempted to, to lead us and that aren't you. 
Lord, that you'd call us back to yourself, that you'd give us a greater delight in the things of you. But Lord, also that you'd give us an, an appetite, that you'd give us a craving, a longing, a yearning for the wonder of your worship to grow, for the, for the astonishment of your worship to grow, for the contagiousness of your worship to grow. Lord, as we see other people in desperate need of being placed in a family, come to see you as their loving father, as we hope and pray. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You're invited to come to the table to take, eat, and to remember his body and blood broken and shed for you, and also to take, eat, and participate in what it means to be a kingdom citizen for his glory and for your good.